Welcome back to the Martial Arts Mania Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, AJ. I'm the other, Gavin Kelly, and welcome to 2022. Oh, yeah, that's right, because we have been uh, uh, gone for a little bit, uh, more than a little bit. It's... uh, We've, we've had a long absence. Uh, we planned to take a short little break. I guess, wait, we didn't really plan to take a short little break. Then we had some life events come up. So then we did plan to take a short little break. Then a short little break turned into a, an extended break. But in our defense, we have been vigorously trying to record for since the beginning of 2022. And pretty much every weekend, something comes up. Because what people have to remember is I live up in the middle of nowhere, literally the middle of nowhere. So if any little thing comes up that we have to take care of, it takes up the entire weekend because then we have to drive into town, quote unquote, which is anywhere from an hour and a half to two hours, depending on where we need to go and what we need to do. So the first thing that hindered us was at the very, because we were actually going to record for New Year's. We were going to do like a New Year's Mm -hmm. finale uh, episode. And then I got hit with a massive snowstorm up here. Huge. So where I am we usually get snow maybe once or twice a year, like nice little pleasant snow. But this is like the biggest storm where I, I am at my elevation has like ever seen. I sent Gavin pictures. It was We got a couple feet of snow. We were completely snowed in. So that took up like a week and a half for me because every day I had to get up early. Like, you know, I usually leave by like 545. I had to get up at five just to shovel my car out of the snow even more. And then poor Jessica all day had to like shovel my spot out and, you know, cause it just kept snowing. So that took up like a week or so. And then, uh, I went to Fresno for my sister, my stepsister's uh, 50th birthday party slash new year. So then that took up a weekend and then we were all out of supplies up here. So then we had to drive a Costco trip, which takes up a whole Saturday. Cause our main day that we consistently can record is Saturday mornings. It works for both of us because with my schedule, I have to commute once again, 45 minutes to work one way. So during the week, it's nearly impossible because I work nine to six and then add an hour and a half of commuting on top of that. Yeah. kind of sucks. So then well, it's like, it, 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 yeah, it also ahead. sounds like you're in traffic, but you have to under like your commute is like you're driving yeah. consistently the whole time. Yeah, like there's my no, commute, there's no traffic. My, it's mountains. my commute could be 20 minutes or it could be right. 45 minutes, but it's like, it's six lane traffic. Yeah. As long as I don't get uh, stuck behind a logging truck uh, or a utility vehicle of some sort, I'm usually good. But then like the next weekend, uh, I'm trying to remember. Was I, I was in Hawaii one of those weekends. You were in Hawaii. And then once again, as I said, we had to take a Costco day where we go and do that. And then I got my haircut that same day. And then uh, then suddenly my car dies on me. The clutch dies on my Jetta. So that has taken up a few weeks of I had to first one Saturday. I had to get the tow truck up here. And once again, Modesto is uh, an hour and a half away. So I had to get a tow truck to tow my car an hour and a half. Uh, to the dealership. So uh, that took up a Saturday. Then the next Saturday, I had to go into town to try to, you know, finagle with them or possibly get a new car, et cetera, et cetera. So that took up a whole weekend. And then, yeah, we've just. And then then it was the, then by then it was last Saturday. And that's when I was hit with like a fever headache that, that just took me out for the count. Yes. That that was last weekend. For like three days. And before people say, oh, it's COVID. Well, you have tested completely negative. I have this entire time. So, I know. Who knows? Who knows, man? Who knows? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, like, we don't need to get into my medical history, but I have the documents here. No, uh, 
but like at one point I just like stopped testing and then I tested again and it was negative. So yeah. just like whatever. Hey, he's he's used to rejection. Yeah. But hey, so we're happy to be back. We want to thank everyone for uh, being so patient. Uh, and this will become a regular thing again. And then the good news is, uh, and I guess I could kind of announce this because it is a for sure thing, uh, except I already let my employers know as well. Uh, Jessica and I will be relocating from our isolated spot up here in the mountains by the end of summer. Uh, odds are we will end up in the Southern California area again. Most likely Orange County is what we're gearing towards. So then recording's going to be a lot easier. We're going to kind of, you know, once again, not be so isolated. And then, you know, we can possibly record together. And then, uh, yeah, so that will be fun. Uh, so, man, we have a we have a lot to catch up on. And we also have an awesome movie. I figured if we're going to be coming back, let's come back big. And I picked one of my favorite old school kung fu movies. But first, uh, what would you like to chime in with, good sir? All right. So all this time off, whether it's been in the snow or me sitting at home or what have you, I think what we've discovered is guilty pleasure. Yes. Yes. And and guilty pleasure streaming. Oh, yeah. So uh, I have a few. I've come up with a few questions regarding guilty pleasures. Okay. And I'm going to start with one. That uh, is basically, I'm, I'm going to ask about what is your guilty pleasure Jackie Chan film? And here's some ca- caveats to that. Mm-hmm. It would be easy for either of us to say, oh, I can, we can sit down and watch uh, uh, Dragons Forever anytime. Right. Armor of God That's anytime. That's not a guilty pleasure, though. Exactly. So I'm talking about maybe the movie that you... There, I have a movie that I really like in Jackie Chan filmography that might not be the world's most popular film, but I'll stand by it. And I'll watch it when I want, and I will smile every time. What is your guilty pleasure Jackie Chan film? I actually have a few, because what people have to remember is Jackie has, especially early in his career, made a lot of films which don't necessarily stand the test of time. Some do, like Dragon Fist, which we did an episode on, which I was just re-watching the other day because I just needed something to watch real quick. Incredible, but a lot of those other old school ones I have a nostalgia factor for. So, for example, a lot of people hate the movie To Kill with Intrigue. I like it simply because of the nostalgia factor, especially if it's the English dub version, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then same thing with, but I think one of the, the the higher quality ones of those original run would be Shaolin Wooded Men. I love it. I think it's a very old school kung fu movie. It's nowhere near as good as uh, Jackie's other performances in terms of choreography and uh, things like that. But, uh, and I... <laughs> fantasy mission force that would be like the ultimate like guilty pleasure one but that that isn't mine i'd say mine and this may be a shameful thing to say uh is maybe the protector oh nice i'm not talking about the hong kong version i'm just talking about the normal regular the protector because i think another easy one to say could have been battle creek brawl but i think battle creek ball actually stands the not stands the test of time because once again for american martial arts movies of that era for sure and it has its moments it has cool uh production and costumes and uh some great character actors in there but i think the protector actually has uh you know, it, it has a terrible reputation, but at the same time, if you, if you look hard enough, you can find uh, some entertainment in there. You know what I mean? Yes. And even some of the fights, although not shot in the best way, James Glickenhaus does not uh, did not know how to shoot proper Hong Kong action. But th- there there's moments in there that are still entertaining. Uh, 
even like the banter back and forth, the relationship between Danny Aiello and Jackie was, Chan, yeah. a lot different than say Jackie Chan and Chris Tucker, which was like, you know, amazing chemistry, but they also played a lot more on the race element between the two of them and the cultural differences. Uh, with with Danny Aiello and Jackie Chan, they just seem like buddies. You know what I mean? It's yeah. th- there's not that uh, it's like a buddy cop without the friction. Uh, the no, buddy it, cop it, element. It, it really was. It was more. The, besides, like with Danny Aiello, there's there's something special about him on film. Mm-hmm. No matter what film you're watching, I remember watching going going Danny Danny Aiello a rabbit hole once and watching his movie that he did, The Pickle about like a short, you know, independent film and whether he was in a mainstream film, an independent film or an action film like this, you got a real sense of authenticity, which is what you get from a Jackie Chan movie at yep. some time. You know, I know his movies are, are huge, but there is something authentic about the way Jackie Chan performs his stunts because he's performing mm-hmm. his stunts. So you, you throw in Danny Aiello's like natural acting with Jackie Chan's like kind of grittiness in that film and it it works now yeah exactly and i don't necessarily like him uh with his swearing like part of my french give me the fucking keys when he's demanding the keys from the boat guy but and some of the action is like terribly shot in a sense where it's jackie style choreography like pop 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 but shot in american style so it almost looks like stage combat in a sense doesn't work but at the same time there's certain elements of american action uh, that Klickenhaus does like uh, kind of almost Sam Peckinpah style slow motion the, and like the high bathroom, speed. the bathroom uh, shootout gun scene is yeah. fantastic. Yep, and then like even there's that classic shot where Jackie runs, puts his legs against the wall, jumps, turns around, and kicks. Like, and then even during that fight in the massage parlor, there's one part where he throws a guy, and the actual execution of the said throw is kind of hokey they don't know how to film it right but then the result of the throw where the guy goes like flying if i'm not mistaken it's kind of like this cool slow motion shot the finale with superfoot has its moments there's a lot they obviously could have done better hence why they reshot it but the rest of that finale where he's fighting all the henchmen and running up and down and it's kind of they have these far away shots a lot of that's actually pretty darn entertaining uh yeah and then yes it's disappointing where with the big guy on the crane at the end but there, there, there's some hidden moments in there, and I think it's just 80s hokey fun. And guess what? If I'm going to watch a campy 80s action movie, but I also get to see Jackie Chan in there, cool. But in terms of his overall body of work, a lot of people are like, that's shameful. How dare you say that? But you just asked the question, guilty pleasure. So Yeah, exactly. There we no, go. Good, good answer. I, I mean, for, for me, I was it's funny because I was thinking back to, like, spiritual kung fu. Oh, yeah. Which, which is a good film, but very odd. Yeah. Uh, but it, it was one of the films that was available. I, I think I've discussed it before. The, the movie library in Japan where you would go and you, you know, you pick out the catalog at the end. So the library would put on the reels for you and you, you watch the film. So uh, Spiritual Kung Fu is up there. But ultimately, and I don't know how people react to this film, but I kind of love it, is Twin Dragons. You know what's so funny? Did I tell you I just started watching that during my lunch breaks uh, on Tubi last week? No. Yeah. So, but it's like, you know, for me with the way it works, because usually I have to get my lunch ready. I'm in the back room at uh, work, blah, blah, blah. So I'll get to watch like 20 minutes of a movie usually. Uh, and so I started rewatching that one because I uh-huh. haven't seen it in years. And uh, not to cut you off real quick, but just I'm, I'm only about 15 minutes in. So I've gone through the big first action sequence, the fight in the okay. club. And yes. I'm like, this is darn good. <laughs> it's just it been is. so long since I've seen it. It's 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 like his early mid nineties throwaway film, but yet 
you don't want to throw it away because it's actually a lot of fun. It, there's, it's not like when you go a little later to like tuxedo or medallion where you're like, yeah, this movie didn't need to be in the, in the filmography. Twin dragons actually fits. And the, it's kind of a movie where the supporting actors get to shine a little bit too. Yes. And in also comedic roles. real quick note, one of the reasons why it still works is because with, especially Jackie from that period, even if maybe the film, uh, let's say the storyline isn't up to par or, you know, the film itself isn't overall as best. He still had the physicality to make any sort of action he's putting on screen amazing and therefore could maybe make up for certain elements that weren't as stellar. Now you go forward to say the tuxedo, uh, other movies like that. We're, we're jumping ahead a decade and plus, And now at this point he's, almost 50 slash 50 for a lot of these early 2000s American movies because born 1954. So he turned 50 in 2004. So it's a huge difference. You know, the toll he had put on his body uh, by this point and this and that he couldn't pull. And he was still doing amazing things, but Mm -hmm. also utilizing a lot more wire work and special effects stuff and this and that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, in comparison to other, maybe more lighthearted movies, a la the tuxedo. Yeah, it's if, if we're if we're like if you're ever going to parallel he and Stallone, Twin Dragons does what Oscar didn't do. Yeah, now and here's the deal: people that sit, don't like Oscar, man, you're just not cool because I love that movie. I haven't seen it. I, though. I saw it in the th- I saw it in the theaters, like when they re released it. In like, uh, I, I remember going with my mother and watching it. Was it's a it's actually a lot of fun, but it's not Stallone. Yeah, I think you know? he gets a, a bad reputation for comedy simply because <clears throat> let's look at what his first big comedy was, and I believe it was Rhinestone, which is a terrible movie. And even at the end, when he's supposedly able to like sing. Unfortunately, there's one Stallone that can sing. That's Frank Stallone, not Sly Stallone. And so, yeah, Rhinestone is a really hard to watch movie. I've only ever watched it like once. And I think, unfortunately, dipping his toes in with that first kind of automatically made people assume he couldn't do comedy. But Oscar is a great one. Now, that being said, who has the more consistent track record with doing comedy of the action stars of that era? It's going to be Schwarzenegger, right? Because he has two all-time classics that he did almost back-to-back with Ivan Reitman in Twins and Kindergarten Cop. Okay, I thought for a second that you were going to say his pregnant movie. Well, no. Junior. Hey, he's not perfect. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, forget that Ivan Reitman did uh, uh, Kindergarten Cop. I loved that movie. Um, anyway, here's another guilty pleasure qu- question for you before we jump into our, our uh, classic old school. Sure. So the right now, uh, like on Twitter, I know you're not on Twitter. I'm not on Instagram. Um, Albert Pune is trending amongst, uh, uh, well, amongst action Twitter. There's just a lot of love between people like discussing Albert Pune. Of course, the Martial Arts Mania podcast Twitter handles certainly participating in that. When it comes to Albert Pune, what do you look for when you like say open? What what are you looking for from a Pune film? What do I look for? Or what am I expecting? Okay, either you can take that question either way. Wow, that's that's interesting because for me, I too uh, have been on a bit of Albert Pune. Uh, watching session uh mostly because you and i are both big fans of the app Tubi, and he has a lot of his movies on there so i discovered recently and i messaged you right away they had just put blood match on there which mm-hmm. is a early 90s Albert pune martial arts 
film uh, that happens to have a small appearance by our mutual sensei, Peter Sugarfoot Cunningham, but also co-stars Benny the Jet Arquitas, Dale Jacoby, all sorts of great guys. Uh, and then I also just recently watched Kickboxer 4 again. And <laughs> it's, it's incredible how different Kickboxer 4 is from all the other movies in the Kickboxer series, really. Uh, even number two, which Albert Pian, uh, Pian did, right? I believe he did yes, number he did. two. He did two, yeah. he did two and four, but not three. I right, he did but three. four just is different than all the rest. and It's so dark. Yeah, exactly. And so right there, you've hit it. With his films, I'm expecting a dark tone and aesthetic. I am expecting a lot of the time, obviously, a either post-apocalyptic or dystopian type setting. But even in a contemporary setting, he will still kind of create that uh, element of isolation or Mm -hmm. being outside of societal norms because if you even look at kickboxer four it's like he's he has to go to mexico he's kind of like leaving uh civilization in a sense and going to this compound that is it's almost like uh there's a prison type setting a lot of his films seem to have this theme of almost like being captured or not being able to escape uh And so, like, the interesting part is, let's say you're looking at action directors, especially from that era. We're talking B-movie action sci-fi films of the 80s and 90s. Probably most of those filmmakers you wouldn't look at as, say, an auteur. Now, Uh someone like suddenly James Cameron, he's going to have a lot more respect because look at all the mainstream success he's had. But at the same time, he hasn't necessarily had, if you're looking like at the overall body of work of an individual and uh, later auteur theory is sort of like, uh, who was it? It wasn't Truffaut. Uh, It was, ooh, I'm drawing a blank right now on who, maybe it was uh, Foucault. Foucault? Uh, I'm not sure. But know, like, I, if you I look at the, the body of work of an individual, you can sometimes take out uh, their films that don't fit in their usual element. And so therefore, that's not part of their typical body of work when you're looking at auteur theory. But I digress slightly. So like someone like James Cameron, his films have been very different, right? You know, yeah. but let's look at someone yes. like Albert Pyan. Like, and if you try to look at him, as an auteur, let's look at the main uh, elements that go into that. So we have uh, uh, the setting is almost always very similar, whether it is a dystopia or a post-apocalyptic setting, or as I said, contemporary, it's still that kind of dark, isolated, beyond the normal world type setting. You have the lighting, right? Uh, His lighting has been like... It's it's always dark. It's always dark, shadowy, uh, depressing, kind of cold. But then, but then, yeah. So he'll sometimes have blues, but then also have like these brown yellows. It reminds me of the 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 film Traffic when Traffic came out, like the the changing of hues. I mean, he has a a great way of almost delivering like a a Dr Pepper ad type of look to some of his films. Yeah. And then next element, let's look at the acting. He constantly brings in the same actors in there. Uh, and then, uh, oh, like what's his name from blood match and kickboxer four and heat seeker. Uh, oh, is it Matt something? Uh, oh, I'm, that's going to drive me crazy. I see, I see his face right now. Yeah. I don't, I mean, I don't see it, but I see it like, okay, hold on. I'm pulling it up real quick. Uh, do, 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 do. 
Tom Matthews. See, I knew it was Matthews something. Tom yes, Matthews. T H O M, right? Yeah. He he yeah. uses the same actors and so forth. And then uh last element, let's look at uh costume uh design, right? So like costume and set design, we kind of already talked about uh set uh design, but like obviously that has to do with the dystopia kind of setting. It's like the cyberpunk type thing. Uh, so there's this consistent, these consistent things amongst his films. And even if we go deeper dive into it, right? Like, uh, we look at the aesthetics as we just kind of mentioned. Now we're going to go are constantly the same, whether it's post-apocalyptic setting or modern day, uh, you've got the themes. The themes are a lot of the times, uh, connected to technology, uh, the adverse effects sometimes, hence the post-apocalyptic setting, the, uh, like battle for control over technology and so forth and cyborg uh, nemesis films like that. We have uh, the themes of his movies. Uh, well, I just said that, sorry. And then uh, let's maybe even biographical elements that go in there. Like, so certain things that he is constantly putting in his movies for one reason or another, but I don't really know his biography that well. So I feel like I've just gone on a tangent uh, that probably people they even want to hear, but, <laughs> but, but so, so you, you would recommend, I mean, I would recommend someone go to Tubi, mm-hmm. the Tubi app and just type in his name. Yeah. Albert, Albert Pune is how, how do you pronounce Pune? it? I would say Pion, but I'm probably wrong. Pion, it might be Pion. P-Y-U-N. We'll say, we'll say Albert P. Albert P. P yeah. Just type in P-Y-U-N and you got to get a, a, a litany of, of films. Like, uh, so I've been, I've been making my way through his films. Uh, I text you about one as like a hint, like what, what, uh, what film am I watching? The lead actor is, uh, 20 minutes in and he has like four haircuts. That was nemesis with, uh, <laughs> Olivier with a, a, yes. Um, uh, and obviously we talked about, we were going to talk about blood match as one of our early January episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I also just watched, uh, a project that was almost launched for TV, Max Havoc. Yes, that, oh, that's the clip you sent me, and that's what I thought. I was like, was that Max Havoc? Why would he be watching that? Was that? Max ha- yeah. I know. Why, why am I watching that? Yeah. No, it, 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 I loved it. It was so much fun. It reminded me of like that space and time that almost existed uh, between uh, martial law and the VIP TV show. I know they existed at the same time, but the, the, the martial arts was kind of inching towards wanting to be a uh, martial law caliber, but uh, had the look of a uh, VIP. And of course, uh, you know, the producers brought a different director and Isaac Florentine to like clean it up. And then they also brought in David Carradine, who all of a sudden became the head of the Japanese Yakuza. So I'm just, it was, it, it got a little awkward and weird, but. Uh, David Carradine, king see? of yeah. the yellow face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it was, man. Bad. It was, bad, it was pretty bad. bad. But it was fun. Yeah. Fun watch. Okay. So, uh, we've talked about a few things. Uh, I think, as you know, you weren't able to come down to LA. I got to see one film that I just was had such a fun time watching with a live audience, New York Ninja. Mm. I hope you get a chance to watch that. Um, and uh, maybe we can discuss that in the future. But I think we, I think we have some a very special film to talk about today. Yes, we do. Yes, we do, Gavin's Han. So, uh, we today are talking about one of my all-time old-school, uh, all-time favorite old-school kung fu movies, and maybe one of the best titles. We're talking about the 1981 kung fu film, Hong Kong, and I'm guessing Korean co-production, Hitman in the Hand of Buddha, starring and directed by the great 
Huang Jing Li in one of his few good guy protagonist roles. So, uh, I'm trying to think the first time I watched this. I want to say it was a long time ago. And then I remember posting about it on Chinese social media when I was still living over there like six or seven years ago because I rewatched it. And I was mm-hmm. just like, man, I got to post about this. It's just such a good movie. Uh, but and I've watched it numerous times over the years. It was on Prime for a while. They took it off, but it is on Tubi. And there are multiple copies on uh, YouTube. There's the Mandarin version with subtitles and the English version, both on Wu-Tang Collection. But they're both really... Uh, terrible formatted versions. They're like super square and small and blurry. So the 2B version is solid. It's the solid English dub, good quality one that you can make full screen and be very entertained watching. Uh, was this your first time watching it? This was. Yeah. This was my first time watching it. And I, I do I do like how you call it the English dub. There are, There's about a cumulative 30 seconds in German. Yeah. <laughs> And it's great. And it's I remember like the, the, I remember specifically rewatching it in China because what I'm thinking is maybe that time I maybe I saw it for the first time while I was living in China. Now, the finale was featured heavily in a documentary that I've talked about before. Pretty sure I talked about it on my guilty pleasure uh, or comfort film one, uh, Top Fighter, the Toby Russell documentary on the section on Huang Jing Li. They use a lot of footage from this movie. So I had seen a lot of bits and pieces of it. Uh and then finally, years years later, get to see the actual film. But uh, yes, even on that, I remember when I first watched the English dub, it suddenly just breaks out into German. And I'm like, this now, keep in mind, this isn't the first time this has happened. And I remember on my original copy of They Call Me Fat Dragon, a.k.a. Incredible Kung Fu Master with Sammo Hung, which was one of the very first old school Kung Fu movies I ever watched. I had a VHS version I got from Best Buy. I remember listening to it on, so I had a little 13 inch TV VCR combo in my room. Uh, I remember it was like such a big deal when I got that. It was like, that that was, that was, hey, in the 90s, that was a huge deal. It was like my big Christmas present that year with uh, the Bruce Lee box set, which I've talked about before. But anyway, so I remember I had wireless headphones so I could watch in my room, like if I was in bed and stuff, you know, and with the wireless headphones, and, you know, you can hear like the underlying audio track. So you can actually hear sometimes either Chinese or German with these kind of movies. I remember on that version, I can't remember whether it was Chinese or German, but I had a few other movies where suddenly I'd be like, it's as if you hear them five rooms away, like, wait, someone's speaking German. And so I think just because obviously there's a lot of uh, Kung Fu fans in Europe, including Germany. And so probably it's like they took maybe the German dub was made first and they just took that and like redubbed over it. And then maybe just forgot to dub two scenes or just decide or ran out of money or just decide eh, who's going to notice. Yeah, no, the, uh, it, it's funny because it, I loved even just that short moment of uh German dub because they like I, I think I texted at the time and I watched the whole thing in German because said mein Han mein Han <laughs> but uh, no the like this was the first time for me watching uh, Hitman in the in the hand of Buddha uh, and the funny and, part is not only is it a badass title it actually does make sense it does it applies yeah. to the movie like he he is kind of a hitman in the hand of Buddha. Yes. So it's it's a fantastic film. I mean, like, they're, they're, they're just like a couple scenes where, you know, like a lot of these films, there, there can be inconsistencies in the script. And in this script, I would say that there actually aren't, I'm 
might say that there aren't any inconsistencies. There are maybe some character choices that I wouldn't have agreed with, but there aren't inconsistencies. And it's, it, uh, it's just great to see this arc of the film. And, and one thing I, I, I do want to talk to you about with regard to this film is the lead actor, Huang J. Lee. And es- essentially, what does he get to do differently martial in, in the martial arts perspective as a protagonist versus as an antagonist? I, I, I mean, from my initial perspective is usually as a antagonist, he comes in with like the full vernacular of how he's going to fight. Mm-hmm. You know his power, whereas with with uh, playing an antagonist, he has this opportunity to grow. And are we seeing, are we seeing a change in his character? Protagonist. Yes. So, so as the good guy Mm -hmm. of the protagonist, we're seeing, we're seeing his martial arts grow in the film. And, and so you, you as a, particularly, I think as a fan as of Huang J. Lee, are you excited at seeing him as this protagonist. Excellent analysis. So first we have to look at the opening scene of the movie, which I interpret, and this is just me deep diving, and so it makes more sense. I almost look at the opening scene of the movie as set after the events of the rest of the movie. Would you agree? Yes. And I'm not sure if that was their intention, but that's how I interpret it uh, because – so the, pretty much the beginning of the movie shows this guy, like he has all this money and these gangsters see him. They're like, uh-huh, we're going to rob that son of a bitch. And, oh, pardon my French. And then the guy knows and he tries running away. And then Wang Jing Lee runs up to him and takes his wallet as if he's stealing it. So then the bad guys go after him because they see he has it now. And he just beats them all up before proceeding to give guy the guy back his money and say, you should be more careful with your money. But that being said, that whole sequence is him kicking nonstop. It's all of his amazing kicks and his incredible, like, full abilities. Then from that sequence, and it's it's kind of like, you know, they just wanted a big opening uh, scene to <clears throat> captivate the audience, which is also kind of plays into audience expectations with kung fu films. Like, you look at the Shaw Brothers uh, films of the 70s, it was the big opening kung fu sequence, right, where they're doing their forms. Like, classic is 36 Chamber of Shaolin, uh, a lot of the Five Deadly Venoms movies, uh I should say the Venoms, you know, including the, well, you know, uh, you get what I'm saying. But uh, particularly those of Lagar Long, right? There's the opening like Kung Fu sequence to kind of give you a preview of what's going to happen in the movie. I mean, so, you, you, even, you even get that in like uh, Yun Biao's Champions, the soccer yeah, movie. You, yeah, get them, exactly. you get them doing Kung Fu moves with soccer. So it's like, it's, uh, I think the actor and director, Actor B. Takeshi, director Takeshi Kitano, when he was when he wanted to unveil his personal painting artwork in the movie Hanabi or Fireworks, he realized that he would catch the audience off guard. So he followed that format of the martial arts film. So the title sequence has a lot of his painting in the background, so that the audience gets is prepared for the style that they're going to see. Right. And and it's like a it's like a little. Uh, translation before the film starts you see this with a lot of old books as well when they have like maps of the kingdoms where things are going to take place with most of these kung fu movies it has it is no way no in no way shape or form connected to the narrative it's just like an introductory sequence now this film is different it is part of the like the the film and story apparently but i like to look at it as this is him now now let's flashback and then you, you're, you're absolutely right. Cause I, when I said there are no inconsistencies in the film, the only thing I thought about is this opening sequence because he's at such a calm space. He's almost like right. that. With he's almost doing Buddha's work. Yes. And, and so he's doing, 
I actually yes. like the way they did this where because you're like, well, I want to see Wong Jang Lee kick. But like throughout the movie, he's already a kung fu expert. And they mention it's like a little aside thing. He's a kung fu instructor and he had to close down his school. But he's already an extremely high level uh, or at an extremely high level of kung fu. And yeah, he kicks, but he doesn't kick like Wong Jang Lee Taekwondo kicks. In fact, he's predominantly. Oh, are you there? Uh oh, technical difficulties. Okay, does it say recording? Okay, five, four, three, two, one. Okay, a little bit of technical difficulties there. It happens, no worries. So, uh, Huang Jingli's character, he's this already a very high-level kung fu instructor, right? He had to close down his school, and that's why he's coming to see his sister and uh, absolutely wonderful brother-in-law, stellar brother-in-law. Uh, <laughs> sarcasm. But so in the choreography in the beginning, he's already able to beat everybody else. Slight spoiler alert, including the number one henchman of the villain. He handles them all easily. The number one henchman being played by Tino Wong, the great Tino Wong, who you might remember from Snake in the Eagle's Shadow, Drunken Master. But the choreography, yes, it features kicks, but not his typical Taekwondo kicks. It's mostly all upper body stuff. And throughout the film, including at the end, he does a lot of his Eagle Claw stuff, which supposedly... Huang Jing Li was a master of, from what I've heard, I think maybe Roy Haran said it in certain interviews, and you also saw Roy Haran use said Eagle Claw and stuff in his movies. Now, whether Huang Jing Li was just kind of a, we know in real life he was 100% for sure real Taekwondo master, combat instructor, allegedly killed a guy in Vietnam with a head kick. That's the urban legend. I don't know if it's true or not. Uh, but... Supposedly he was also an Eagle Claw Kung Fu master. Don't know how. Don't know if that was more just like for stage, like yeah, he just knew Eagle Claw forms or if he was an actual uh, exponent of it. However, these fight scenes, we don't get to see a lot of his kicking and that may disappoint some people, but it helps with the story arc uh, uh, and his character development, right? So the, the choreography itself is very much in line because it's 1981. Uh, we have Corey Yuen and Hoi Mong as the choreographers. So it's very much in line with that almost Cantonese Kung Fu style of Samuel Hung, Jackie Chan, whether it's like the Kung Fu comedies, a la Magnificent Butcher or Drunken Master, or maybe some of the more serious ones like say Dragon Fist or The Victim. It's that style of very creative, fast paced, uh, ingenious kung fu choreography as opposed to maybe Lao Gar Lung style which is also he evolved into this incredible fast pace but was more if anything maybe slightly more technical in terms of realistic kung fu with his you know hungar background and there was there was uh, and sometimes with like what I would say you know the Jackie Samo camp we get a little more fun and creativity but with the Lao Gar Lung, like Shaw Brothers ones, we get a little more like hard intensity, authenticity in a sense. So this mm -hmm. film is definitely more in lines with that kind of Samo Jackie style. Obviously it makes sense when you have Corey Yuen and Hoi Mong as the choreographers of the film. And this is Corey Yuen like really coming into his own. This is around the same time he also did Game of Death 2, I think with Yuen Wu Ping. And so these guys, it's like their creative juices that they had been 
cultivating and their skills they had been working on since the early days of kung fu movies. You know, some of these guys on the Bruce Lee pictures, then afterwards, even in like what is now being co- uh, coined the basher genre, the early Shaw Brothers films, you know, the <laughs> T. Long, David Chiang ones where Lao Kar Long was first like kind of getting in the groove of things with Chang Chi, you know by this point like we're 10 years in they've really started to hone their craft and so this film is an example of that you know doesn't belong to golden harvest doesn't belong to uh shaw brothers it's an independent made one and maybe one of the best independent made ones just because of how stellar all the fight sequences are how creative they are how hard-hitting they are and they never disappoint you never get bored uh, and yes, they do some kind of, you know, interesting creative choices where it's like maybe one guy's on the ground and the other guy's on his back on top of his legs and they're fighting backwards. But it all works like it's you're expecting that. Right. And that's the kind of stuff you'd see from a Jackie Sammo type movie as opposed to a Laogar Long one. But, yeah, we don't get to see his typical kicking style until, you know, he loses to our villain played by the magnificent Eddie Coe, which is yes. also a great change of pace for him because, for example, for me, I remember him best as playing Ho Yan Jia or Fak Yun Gap in the Fist of Fury TV series with Donnie Yen. So this classic good guy role and also from Lethal Weapon 4 for American audiences, that's probably what you'd recognize him as, as the, the grandpa or uncle of the uh, Chinese immigrants that are staying with the Murtaugh's. Uh, but... Here he's playing this just vicious villain. He does a great job. He's got the long hair like Huang Jingli usually does because that's another thing to note is Huang Jingli's physical appearance is much different than his typical uh, antagonist villain roles. Normally we always see him with the mustache and or beard, but typically his classic mustache and the long black hair. Or like, for example, his rubber legs in Dance of the Drunk Mantis. The white hair, right? The silver fox was one of his nicknames. He constantly played villains with the long silver white hair and mustache and or beard. So he kind of always has the same aesthetic. Here it's different. He has not even shoulder length uh, black like a black bob almost or hair, right? And he does not have a mustache or beard. He does have uh, interesting chops, almost like a throat tee, as some people mm-hmm. might say, but it gives him a whole different physical appearance. Like for the uh, untrained eye or, you know, maybe the viewer who is not as familiar with Kung Fu films, they may not even recognize him. In fact, you know, patrons of Kung Fu cinema may not even realize at first that that's Huang Jiang Li. And so that's nice, too. It gives him this whole different look. And he actually looks like he looks like a hardened good guy. Right. He looks like a yeah, he, Clint he, Eastwood. He looks, it's funny because he, he does look like a hardened good guy, but he also looks softer than his usual yes. like uh, air of confidence. I'm a bad guy. Yes. And who, who am I here to kill? A hundred percent. You see him like and when he smiles in this movie. It's a genuine like, oh, he looks like a nice guy. Whereas opposed to whenever he smiles in his other movies, you're like, oh, he's going to kill somebody. You know, it's an yeah. evil smile. So the change in his physical appearance, the change in his actual martial arts application, it helps him be a realistic hero that we can relate to. And also, had he we just gone with the audience expectation of him just being this phenomenal kicker from the get-go, who knows? Maybe it wouldn't have worked. Maybe it also wouldn't have been as good of a buildup to the finale. So as we mentioned, he beats up everybody else, even Tino Wong, the main henchman, he easily handles him. So it's Eddie Ko that has to come in and uh, handle him and then pretty much nearly kills him. But he's saved by his, uh, uh, Wang Jingli saved by what we might call his frenemy, played by Fan Mei Sheng, a classic Hong Kong actor. Probably many people remember him best as 
the fat kung fu instructor from the young master i feel like that one's the one people sleep on and forget where he, jackie has the classic fight scene with the fan but he was also he replaced simon ewan in the magnificent butcher as kind of the older kung fu master role like he does in this film he's also mm-hmm. the father of fancy wong in real life uh classic character actor I've, I've always liked him in that role. He's jolly. He's kind of like a Kung Fu Santa Claus <laughs> in his, you know, his jolly demeanor and stuff, but also does a great job with his Kung Fu. But he comes in and saves Huang Jing Li. He has a background with Eddie Ko's evil character and like he's like, please spare him. And then he sends him off to the Buddhist temple where they are kind of that whole sequence isn't done as well as other movies like his training sequence and it could just be the english dub i didn't take the time to watch the mandarin one all the way through i only did to figure out what they were saying in the german parts but pretty much they train him kind of in secret to use him as a hitman to go back and then kill eddie ko's character because he's so evil right hence the hitman in the hand of buddha and in the mm-hmm. interim without huang jangli even knowing the bad guys murder and rape his sister well, technically, they, they they rape her and then she commits suicide and then eventually also kill his brother-in-law, who uh, definitely falls in line with that kung fu comedy uh, archetype. You know, he's like the cross-eyed, like, loser, like, you know, goofy uh, kind of person. Yeah. Um, yeah, that, that, it's, that's interesting. Well, speaking of the casting, what I've always really appreciated about uh, Hong Kong films are they the willingness to cast uh, characters or the willingness of character actors to play these roles, whether it is the the, the Hong Kong cinema uh, Santa Claus or the, the, I don't know how else to say it, but the loser brother-in-law character. There, there, there's, there is this willingness to per- portray, to be allowed to be portrayed in different uh, levels of strength. Yeah. And different levels of and like in, in, in the case of the of the of the beggar, he's you know, he's uh, he's actually very good at Kung Fu, but he hides how good he is at Kung right. Fu. And that's actually one of the lessons that uh, Huang J. Lee's character has to learn because he comes in uh, kind of full of himself. But he's slowly like learns that he's not as strong. Uh, when when the when the beggar has to help him right. out well, versus Eddie Coe. He's full of himself, but rightfully so. And he's not, yeah. I wouldn't even call him cocky or arrogant. He just has never obviously had an issue with winning and then does. And then so while he is training at the Buddhist temple, they're strengthening his legs. We don't actually get to really see him do much training beyond the like bow staff training, but they're constantly strengthening his legs. Hence why suddenly he becomes an amazing kicker in the finale, which in the finale, we get to see him at his full-fledged best. When he's fighting the initial henchman and Tino Wong, it's kick galore, right? And then when he has the showdown with Eddie Ko, he starts off kind of like the uh, Huang Jingli earlier in the movie. Very good at kung fu, but it's mostly upper body stuff. But he's actually getting the better of Eddie Ko to the point of... <laughs> There's classic lines like, you're too good for me, like Eddie Ko as the villainous. And he's like, what are you, an Iron Man? Uh, but then suddenly Eddie Ko comes back and then starts beating him and is about to like kill him. Uh, when mm-hmm. spoiler alert, Fan Mei Sheng shows up, does a epic WWE style drop kick on Eddie Ko, and then he reveals to Wang Jingli, "Hey, he also murdered your brother-in-law." And then for some reason that sets Wang Jingli off on this like new path where then we get to start seeing his kicking. We get to see some amazing kicks, jump spinning kicks, the trip classic triple side kick, the like 
one leg hooked behind his neck, kick him with the other leg. And then it's cool. It's like, yes, would I have wanted to see him kick that way the whole movie? Of course. But by doing it the way they did, it just makes it all that more special. And that's the reward we get. Uh, it's so it's the yeah the the choreographic reveal that we get with each passing fight right uh with each passing fight uh i mean that's that's thanks so much to huang jay lee's ability but also to Corey yoon's vision Mm -hmm. and earlier you mentioned that this might be uh one of the best independent uh films of this style and it's very interesting because if you look back on uh Corey yoon's uh choreographic career you can say that about a lot of his films it's obviously we've talked about that with writing wrongs where it's it is a golden harvest film but it's sort of like an indie film and it's probably one of the best of its well i think that one may have been a co-production with one of sammo's conglomerates or whatever he had a few uh so but it it was was definitely golden harvest but it had this like indie feel yes. to it, and it's so we we've always felt like it's one of its best. And we've we've talked about uh, Kiss the Dragon a little bit too. But when we talk about that like co Western production, like you could talk about the Transporter movies, like there is something special. Of course, those are choreographed by Corian as well. But Kiss the Dragon is also one of those films that just stands out as when it comes to like that that era of Hong Kong Hong Kong infused Western films. And it's standing out. Corey Yoon has had this ability to tell tales through choreography that are both dramatic and fully engaging that make his films from each era of his career stand out Mm -hmm. beyond uh, what you might expect from somebody else. Other people have like these long arcs that slowly where you see, oh, here's the peak. We can look back at their career. I mean, and, and see the see the the growth with with Corey units like I've mastered this period. I've mastered this period. Here is here is the gem of the period. I'm going into this period now and I've found a way to master this. So it's like it, he has these different peaks throughout his career that are all based on his innovation. I, I, I particularly even loved his uh I'm sorry to jump us so far forward in the in his timeline, but his film so close. Mm, yeah, uh, cool. One. His choreography is kind of now that he's his choreography there is is, is cutting edge. Quite yeah. frankly, you know, I mean, but it always is. Yeah, and the thing is, and excellent points all around. He also had that ability, like Sammo Hung, to bring the best out of his performers and also utilize their attributes to their best but then also figure out how to get have them step out of their comfort zone in a sense too you know like even tangent real quick like you look at writing wrongs they have our sensei pd sugarfoot cunningham using both his kickboxing but also uh his shonen ryu karate background like you know the, Mm -hmm. the straight karate punches and so forth then like he also has them utilizing more of a kickboxing stance and snappy kicks and so he knows how to bring the best out of his performers and example for example in this movie we have predominantly most of the fights in the in this film we don't even get to see huang jing li utilizing his best attributes his kicks his taekwondo style kicks but you would never know he's not a kung fu practitioner because constantly throughout the the movie he's able to utilize these typical kung fu uh movements and stances and stuff a lot of times it's like even in the finale with eddie ko they start off fighting he's going into these very traditional uh kung fu movements stances poses and you 100 believe it like oh this guy's a kung fu expert not 
uh, and then you suddenly get to see him kick. Like, oh wait, maybe he's a Taekwondo expert, right? He's both, really. Yeah. And a lot of that comes to both Huang Jingling as a performer, Corey Yuen as a choreographer, and then you know, director-wise, also Huang Jingling showed. And yes, it is. Uh, he's co-director uh, supposedly with a Park Yun Q, which is uh, I mean, the thing is, a lot of these movies back then that would be a pseudonym for someone else. It could be another Korean individual or a Hong Kong individual. We don't really know, but mm-hmm. just giving the benefit of the doubt that Huang Jing Lee predominantly directed this, maybe he had a great eye as a director, and it would have been cool to see him do more. And it takes a lot to be able to direct yourself and make it all look good. Uh, and not seem like a vanity project, right? Like, because even <laughs> I've talked about it before, John Liu's uh, When Zen Kwon Do Strikes, which actually has some phenomenal fight scenes, but is a total vanity project for himself. And you're watching this like, oh, yeah, definitely see why this guy directed it. Uh, but y- you would never get that with this film, right? It's just a badass old school kung fu flick for all the right reasons. And yep. on top of that, has a phenomenal musical score, which I'm sure was completely original. Sarcasm, because it's not. Okay. It's James Horner's score for Battle Beyond the Stars. <laughs> yeah, and like, so, wait a but the thing is, talk about great use, because like a lot of Kung Fu movies would take music, especially Bruce Bloitation ones. There's so many Bruce Lai ones where they rip from the James Bond movies. Everyone knows where that comes from, or the Rocky theme. Everyone knows the Rocky theme. This one, you're like, damn, this music's really good. Okay, who's is, is if Frankie Chan's not the guy who did the music, then I doubt it's original, but huh, this is really good music, and I don't know it. So you take an obscure, like, American sci-fi fantasy film, Battle Beyond the Stars, with James Horner, fantastic uh, musical uh, director. Uh, you know, he did uh, what, Red Heat. I think he did a lot of Arnold's movies, uh, and I mm-hmm. love the score to Red Heat. But uh, and it, it's great, and inc- it includes the some musical cues that Quentin Tarantino used for Kill Bill, including the da na 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 especially when in the the fight scene between uh, L and the Bride, where she's like, "That's right." I killed your master. The da na 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 na. So that's used in this film. Uh, and then just the musical choices are great too. But I remember, I think it was a couple years back when I was rewatching it, there was a long enough period where nobody was talking and the music was just playing that I shazammed it. And that's how I figured out what the score was from. So uh-huh. great use of uh, intellectual property theft. Uh, and yeah. So once again, the film overall comes together as a great classic Kung Fu film. I highly recommend everybody watches it. You will not be disappointed. If you love classic Kung Fu movies and haven't seen this, watch it right away. Put it next on your list. If you are a casual fan, you're going to love it. Uh, And maybe if you haven't really experienced much classic Kung Fu cinema, this may be a first good one to go into because you're not like watching one of the absolute stellar best of the all time, like say uh, Fearless Hyena or, you know, Magnificent Butcher, The Victim, like one of those. Cause you know, you never want to start with the very, very best one first. Uh, Yeah, I started with with spiritual Kung Fu. Right, and I started (laughs) with uh, The Incredible Kung Fu Master, which is still one of my all-time favorites, but, you know, is maybe lesser known and, once again, not like one of those all-time greats. Like, for example, when it comes to uh, the, like, shoot-em-up gangster Hong Kong type films, John Woo cinema in particular, my very first one I saw was Hard Boiled which in yes. my opinion is the best. I love hard more than the killer. I have a newfound appreciation for the killer from a few years back when I went and saw it, when John Woo came and spoke. Uh, but 
I saw hard, hard boiled first and nothing else ever compared to me. And there were some great ones, but I was just like, oh man, this is the best. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Hard boiled is, is by far the best. But yeah, you're right. Like once you see the best, it's, it's, you, you have to get used to maybe a slightly slower gear, great classic films. And if you're not, if, if you've exposed yourself to the best, sometimes it's a little difficult to do that. It might take a little time to get used to it. It's a great, great entry film. Yeah. Uh, and it's a great if you're a seasoned viewer because someone like me, who had not seen this film fully engaged loved it it's available on tubi people should go watch it there and definitely watch the tubi version yes there's yeah. commercials but guess what there's also advertisements on the youtube versions and the youtube versions just are never good enough quality and like uh the the aspect ratio is all off the tubi version yes you're gonna get commercials every once in a while they're not that bad uh they're quite frankly better than the ones I get on YouTube. I get the most obnoxious ads. I'm like, why would you think I need to buy ladies products like that? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so Tubi, go there, watch it, utilize Tubi. It's such a great app. There's so many classics on there. We're probably going to be doing a lot more movies from there just because it makes it easier for audience listeners to also go and immediately uh, watch the film. And by audience listeners, I mean Gavin's mother, our number one fan, <laughs> yeah. who lots of times wants to know where to watch the film. So you can purchase this film on Amazon Prime, probably for anywhere from 99 cents to $2.99. You can watch it on YouTube on the Wu-Tang uh, official page uh, and either the English dub version or the Mandarin dub version with subtitles. But we recommend you go to Tubi.com and watch it there, the English dub version. Uh, that being said, when uh, I was re-watching a little bit this morning, I did notice in the Mandarin version, there are a few extra little scenes. Really? Yeah. So uh, I may go back and re-watch that and see. I don't think it's anything significant. It's like 10, 15 seconds here or there. That probably has to do with the fact that our English dub version came from the same one that they cut and released for the German market, obviously. So, uh, yeah. But otherwise, any final notes on this film? Uh, you know, it's it's a great it's a great watch, uh, and it's really oh, and plenty for, again, of fight scenes, by the way, tons of fight yeah, plenty scenes. Of, plenty so. of fight scenes, and it's it's just really great to watch the the character arc, gr the character grow through his martial arts knowledge. Right, uh, as as he grows and as he learns more martial arts, he becomes a fuller person. Yes. Does that make sense? Yeah. It, it's basically it's basically what you want from a best uh, the best type of martial arts film. Your actual character growing as they learn these the as they delve deeper into right. their training. Yeah. And then uh, as we mentioned, we're back on track. We're hopefully going to record every week. I am going to finally start doing those mini episodes. I've been watching a lot of movies in prep. So my main Christmas present from Jessica was that Shaw Brothers re-release, the you know the brand new 2K scan Blu-ray re-release of uh, they chose like 10 classic Shaw Brothers movies. I got the pack right behind me. So I've been re-watching some. Found a new found appreciation for some I haven't watched in like a decade. So I'm going to start doing little mini episodes where I talk for maybe five to 10 minutes about the film, uh, what I think about it, give it a rating, uh, and I'm just going to start dropping those just for fun. And as we said, uh, over these next six months, you know, we may run into some recording hiccups, but then eventually I will be exiting the mountains. Uh, isolation. It's been nice, but it's time for us to come back to civilization. Excuse me, civilization. Uh, and so, yeah, who knows where we'll end up. But and, I, and I'm and I'm and I have a blue Yeti on my radar. So very soon. We're going to be both recording from our laptops and able to to uh, incorporate some uh, 
equal caliber audio. That's what so, I'm talking about. I'm and looking actually, forward to that. Your quality today was fantastic in your car in the parking garage. It's great. Yeah, yeah your video quality and, is great today too. Usually it's like the audio sounds good, but then you're a little blurry. But hey, good uh, good internet today in Venice. Um, I have two questions yeah. for you. I don't. Are they okay? One is. Have you caught up with season four yet? Because I really need to talk Kai? to you. Yeah. No, but interesting because everyone at work. So for people that forgot or don't know, I am the manager of uh, a gym, a uh, popular gym franchise known as Anytime Fitness. So a lot of the members of the gym, knowing my you know martial arts background and stuff, keep asking me if I've watched Cobra Kai. And the main thing is, I love the Cobra Kai series. We've talked about this, but I'm I'm so deep invested. Karate Kid, the original trilogy, is so important to me and such yeah. a main part of my childhood that, like, I don't go into this lightly. And I've had to like psych myself up to get ready for it. Like after I finished season three, I wanted season four the next day. But I know once I get a sweet, sweet taste of that first episode, I'm gonna want to marathon it. So I purposely just not watch up. Like I just haven't been ready for it yet. I know. But last week was the first inkling I got where you know what. Maybe one of these weekends, this will be the, the weekend. That being the, said, the, though, we just started watching uh, Peacemaker on HBO, which is fantastic. And just yeah. last night, we started the new Jack Reacher series. I which, was going to ask about that. Yes, which I was intrigued to start, but I thought, eh, it's not going to be that great. No, it is fan-effing-tastic. We yeah. love it. We've watched the first two episodes, and... I think the first episode had two huge fight scenes and the second one won. They're really good. The actor, yes. I don't even know his name, the big giant dude who, that is what yeah. the Jack Reacher character is supposed to be. That was the main qualm people had about the Tom Cruise version was in the books, he's written as this ginormous brooding. Yeah, he's huge. Yeah, I remember my dad telling me about it because he uh, read the books and then you have little Tom Cruise. Now, I really enjoyed the first Jack Reacher movie with Tom Cruise. I did not like the second one. Barely even remember it. But now we've actually cast an individual who fits the part and it works. And he knows how to use his size and those fight scenes and the choreography, whoever they have doing it. I need to look into that. Amazing job because they Jeff know how Pruitt. to do it. What? I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Oh, I was like, Jeff. what? No way. Uh, <laughs> I just uh, love to see Jeff Pruitt uh, choreographing for him. Right. But either which way, I recommend people start checking it out. I'm two episodes in and I'm loving it. So maybe okay. once I get through Peacemaker and Jack so Reacher. Yeah, no pressure. Once you take your time, we have to talk about uh, something. We have to talk about something. No, there's one aspect at the very okay, end. I don't want of to know season. anymore. Don't want to know I'm anymore. I'm not going to tell you, but this we is... have to talk about it. It's like I, because I think you're the only person I can talk about okay. it with. Okay. Okay. So I'm, I'll be ready. Uh, oh, and then you mentioned the Battle Creek Brawl. Yeah. I wanted to say that that is actually one of the better opening sequences for an American martial arts yeah. film from that era, and it is. It's Jackie Chan on wires above a uh, uh, on a bri like bridge wires, if I'm not mistaken. But wait, with the soundtrack by Lalo Schifrin. Right, but don't forget the actual opening sequence is him doing the martial arts in like that slow motion blurred yes. effect. Right. Yes. So it's that, and then he's doing right. that. But it, uh, the 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 soundtrack is is Lalo Schifrin with the whistling and uh, the bass. So they were so basically trying to bring like try trying to recapture Enter the Dragon. Yes. But which, I love that theme. I right. love that theme. I I as a kid I would whistle it all the time, and I finally found like an orchestration version by Lalo Schifrin on like some Symphony Meets the Jazz like Volume One or Two that I would listen to as like a nerd kid, but. Oh well, I, li I liked I liked the theme and I like Lalo Schifrin a lot. Hey, my man, I was a nerd too, dog. But that <clears throat> no, was kind of stuff. We're I, not nerds anymore. Yeah, man, we're bad mother effers. But uh, that was the kind of nerdy stuff I'd have to keep hitting when I was a kid because where I grew up, you didn't like 
openly talk about. He's like, yeah, man, football, country, yeah. Lalo Schifrin. Lalo, who the heck, who's that? <laughs> no, I was just like, he plays I, running back. I remember I had to, uh, I had the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack, which I had to keep a secret because <laughs> uh, I just thought it was so good. I loved the Bee Gees. And now as an adult, I'm like, hell yeah, you want to fight about that? The Bee Gees are awesome. But I remember having that soundtrack and having to keep it hidden. Because don't get me wrong, I love classic rock too, but I love the Saturday Night Fever soundtrack. I, but if, I had to keep, I had to keep, uh, uh, my Henry Mancini uh, sound, uh, like best of Henry Mancini kind of cassette tape kind of hidden because he had the Peter Gunn theme or uh, Spy Hunter mm. theme. And I was just like, wow, this is so good. I would listen to it all the time and warp the tape. But yeah, you can't, you can't go out and out and about with that. No, no. Not back then. You're, uh, you're cruising for a bruising, as my dad would have said. Yeah. <laughs> but all right. uh, on that, any final notes? No, I'm, this was great. It's yeah. great to be back. We are so happy to be back. Uh, hopefully we can record next week. I will also be taking a few trips down to L.A. over the next two months. Yep. Simply because I had a ton of points that were about to expire in April. So Jessica and I are we're taking a, a trip together to go visit Seattle, see my brother and his family. And then she's going to go home and visit family. And then I'm taking three trips to L.A. because that's how many points we had that I had to use. So, uh, yeah, it'll be fun. We'll get to hang out. We'll definitely. We need to make sure we record together. Let's do it. Yeah. We'll do it. We, we, we just have to, even if they're shorter episodes, because really, quite frankly, every time I go down there, we're having too much fun and doing too much stuff. Like, we just don't find the time to record, but we'll make the time. Uh, sounds good. Yeah, and maybe, maybe that's the perfect opportunity to do that special episode you were just talking about yesterday with us interviewing that individual. That might be good. I think that individual is going to be in town in March with the screening. Wait, so you're saying maybe we can do it in person? Yes. Oh. Maybe. My Lord. All right. All right. Well. All right. This is good. On that note, I will see you later, my friend. Okay. Take care. Adios.